Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jettikin. Can I just do a thing up top really quick? Sure. Okay, since we didn't have our Friday mini this week and we're not going to have one next week, you guys, my 90 Day Fiance podcast is out. There's three episodes up already. It's called 90 Day Fiance Slumber Party. So you should subscribe if you're into 90 Day Fiance. Me and the girls from Web Crawlers are recapping all the episodes this season. Anyway, it's out. 90 Day Fiance Slumber Party. That's it. <laughs> anyway. Housekeeping. That's, that's our a, housekeeping. Is that what that's who who started that for podcasts? I have no idea. It's, it's like, like someone who wanted to make it sound cute. Right. Like and not just like business. Like we're getting all of our promotional shit out of the right. way. Right. Uh, since we aren't having that either. I don't have anything to promote, but I did want to recommend a documentary. I told Rachel about it. It's um, Tell Me Who I Am on Netflix, and it's really good. I'm not going to give away any details. Trust me, you're going to like it if you're into crime or creepy stories. Watch it. <laughs> That's my recommendation. You know, we we get in. We usually get right into the show topic like immediately. Yes, but Which since we're not good. having the bonus apps where we recommend things. We're spending literally two minutes, so don't yeah. freak out. Don't. I know you're spoiled by us, always <laughs> starting the show immediately. We don't do talking up top right. forever. No, which that's is, it. Which is fine if podcasts do. Yeah. Do we have patrons We have today? patrons. Just a few, because we had a short... Inter- short few days between since last week's was late. Yeah. So, so this is this like, is also not a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> this is like from the past two days. We had a couple patrons. We had Jackie, Jalisa, and Sandra. Thanks, guys. Thank you. You're just as important as a long list of patrons. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Cool. So um, yeah. So I feel like we've had a bunch of weeks of heavier shows because uh, October we did pretty much all murders and then the past few weeks have been definitely heavier shows. So I thought it would be fun to do a lighter episode. And that's exactly what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about Ho Icon, Mae West. So there's lots to get into today. So let's get started. Hell yeah. (laughs) So I, I was actually thinking like, when I was researching this, like how I first thought, found out about Mae West. And I actually think it was like from a, maybe like a Bugs Bunny cartoon. <laughs> Is that possible? I feel like I, I feel like I had seen her type of woman before I knew who she was. She, I would like known of her as like a caricature, like why don't you come up and see me sometime? Right. Like I feel like I knew that caricature of her, like maybe from some animated show before I actually knew it was attached to a real person. I just couldn't remember how I discovered her. I also think I became more aware of Mae West from Lil Kim because she shouts because oh. she shouts her out, right? Yeah. So I was like, well, if Lil Kim likes her, she must be cool. <laughs> okay. So Mae West was born Mary Jane West in Brooklyn in 1893. Although she would often claim she was born seven years later, her dad was a boxer who was billed as Batlin Jack West, and he was also in the livery business, which is the horse and carriage, kind of like a taxi driver, yeah. but with horse and carriage. And he eventually became a PI. Her mom was a corset and fashion model, so she seems this seems pretty tailor-made to be the parents of Mae West. Absolutely. Honestly. Um, so her first sort of star moment was at the age of five when she apparently wowed the attendees of a church show, social. <laughs> I actually wanted to just tell a brief story. Have I ever told you the story about how I used to entertain when I went to Mormon church? Uh, no. <laughs> okay. So 
I wasn't very religious, but my grandparents were Mormon and would go to church every Sunday. And I was very close to my Nana, so I would go to church with her and try to be a good little girl. <laughs> the perfect angel. So I was like a little trash child, but I would go to church and get really dressed up. My grandma would put Nellie Olson banana curls in my hair. <laughs> and no, there's no pictures of me Aww. because I had a bad mom. But like, so I would go to church and like in Mormon church, there's like a section of the service where the people, the people who will go up and bear their testimony. So they'll go up on stage and, and like, be like, they're like, I like to bear my testimony. I know this church is true. It's like talking about your like faith in the church and God and all of this kind of stuff. All adults. Okay. All adults did this except for me. <laughs> I was the only kid oh. who would go up on stage and bear my testimony. Oh my God. And like my aunts who were church going and my Nana would all be like in the front row crying tears. Like I was the bravest girl <laughs> in the world. And literally the only reason I did it, Rachel, was because I wanted to talk on a microphone. <laughs> <laughs> and here I am. <laughs> I'm telling you. I had one of those my first Sony microphone no. things when I was a kid. Yes. And you know what? I never, ever, ever thought that this would be my job ever. Seriously? I thought like, oh, I'm going to be like an actress or like a comedian. No. Talking on a microphone to me was like literally the most exciting thing. I'm telling you, how did I not put two and two together that I would, because like I fucking, anytime there was a microphone, I wanted my face in it. I was like, I, I would just hold it and be like, hey. <laughs> like that was literally enough for me. Like I would, you, you're trying to like come up with something to say. You're just like, hi. <laughs> oh yeah. It was so dumb. But yeah. So that's like, everyone was crying and thought I was like so religious, but it was literally me being a ham. And just I love being that. like, I know my church is true. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Uh, so after her big church <laughs> social, like, you know, uh, star moment, she starts performing in amateur produ- productions and winning talent shows. Before long, she joins the vaudeville circuit. Um, and by the age of 14, she's performing under the name of Baby May. During these amateur hours, she would she had like a little look as Baby May. Baby May had like there's like an old school performer called Lillian Russell who was kind of yeah. like a she has like the big hat and like the corseted dress like that kind of late 1800s look that's pretty familiar. And Mae West took that look later in her career, so she started dressing that way at the age of 14. According to her bio, she sang a song one time during a vaudeville show called Moving Day. And while she was on stage, the spotlight couldn't find her. And at some point she yells out, where's my spotlight? (laughs) And by the time the spotlight came on her, she was stomping her foot and pouting. (laughs) And the audience like lost it. They thought it was like the most hilarious thing ever. And were just like laughing and applauding at this little kid being like, where's my spotlight? So she was really encouraged to be a performer by her mom, who thought like everything May did was fantastic. But other family members were kind of like, oh, this is not an appropriate environment for kids, like whatever. They were worried she'd get into like burlesque because that was sort of like the level below vaudeville at the time, which is funny because now that's like pretty popular um, art form. But yeah, back then it was like burl- she's going to get into burlesque. Um, so they pretty much disapproved of this career choice for her. Her act was pretty sexual, even as like a teen. I love it. 
one of her biggest performances that was like our biggest hit performances when she was a teen. And I have to say it was like wildly hot, shocking when I heard it. I was like, I can't believe she's like 15 doing this. She would do a fan dance completely nude, like <gasps> behind a huge fan. Like so the they, feather fans? Yeah. So you couldn't see anything, but she was naked and she covered herself in like a glittery type powder. And then she would gyrate so much that the glittery powder would sprinkle over the audience in the front row and people would like lose it. Isn't that like a hot dance? That's a good move. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I really so she like was that. literally covered in this powder. So when she would gyrate, it would just like kind of puff up and like fall on people in the front row or something. That What a show. Yeah. So this is like what she's doing as a teen. So it was during this period that Uh, She was kind of presumed to have picked up her trademark style, including her walk, that was greatly influenced by the stars of the pansy craze. Have you heard of the pansy craze? Uh, No. Can you guess maybe what it might be? Is that like foppish men? Um, No, it's a period when drag performers were all the rage from the 1900s to the early 1930s. This is basically um, a period where the subculture of gay performances that were taking places in like the West Village kind of made their way into a more mainstream venue. This is a really interesting period and I feel like it will be a great episode to do at some point. So I'm not going to get too much into it. Well, you know, my favorite drag performer ever of all time, Gladys Bentley, she performed in Harlem in the 20s and 30s. Oh, so she was probably part of this. So... Now, May also had some drag king elements to her act at this time as well. So she starts working under the name Jane Mast and got her first Broadway show part in a 1911 review. At the age of 18, she was back to using May West and um, was finally given a nice dose of press when she was written about in the New York Times. The Times reviewer wrote that a girl named May West, hitherto unknown, pleased by her grotesquerie and snappy way of singing and dancing. She next appeared in a show called Vera Violetta, who had um, Al Jolson in it, so kind of working with these bigger stars of the day. In 1912, she appeared uh, in the opening performance of A Winsome Widow as a baby vamp named La Petite Daffy. (laughs) And she kind of became very well known for her shimmy, which was a sexual style of dance she picked up by hanging out in Harlem nightclubs. Now, this shimmy, like caught her famous, like she lived off the shimmy for four years. That was like her bread and butter, this shimmy dance that she was doing in certain uh, reviews. By the time she was closing in on 30, though, her her career had stalled. Now, at this point, she's seeing uh, successful liberated women characters being performed like by Clara Bow and Gloria Swanson, and that really inspired May. She quickly realized she could get what she wanted by writing her own material and material that would highlight her best assets, her wise cat wisecracking and raunchy persona. Her first attempt at doing that was with a play called Sex. <laughs> she just went for it. Good for you, May. She, she didn't do any subtle <laughs> names naming of the, the play. Good it was just for called you. Sex. Now the 1925-26 New York theater season included Highbrow Fair from Eugene O'Neill and Noel Coward, but no Broadway offering got more attention than the debut play by Mae West uh, you gotta called love Sex. That. You, yeah. gotta, you gotta love that these people think that they're <laughs> highfalutin yes. plays are, yeah. and hers is getting all She's the She's like, love. here's what the people fucking want, Noel Coward. 
<laughs> the play is basically your hooker with a heart of gold type storyline, and it's like a pretty early version of it. May plays a sex worker named Margie Lamont, <laughs> who is like at the lowest rung of working in a brothel. brothel. And it's definitely one of these kind of like high society thinks they're better than me, but they're all rich hypocrites. Like it's that kind of vibe. When writing it, Mae West was adamant that Margie be totally different than other sex sex workers that had previously been portrayed on stage. She wanted Margie to be funny, likable, smart, and uh, more importantly, at no point in the play did she want her to need being uh, to need saving or to repent oh, about anything. It. So she's really pushing back on this idea of sex work as being less than. At this time, like in the 19, 1926, which is a pretty uh, revolutionary uh, look on things. So according to her, she was inspired um, when she saw a, according to her, streetwalker strolling with two sailors near the docks. This woman had on cheap clothes, but an expensive hat that she had saved up for or gotten as a present from the sailors. That's like May's impression of what happened. And May wanted to write a Horatio Alger type story about a girl like that, pulling herself up, not leaving the business, but becoming the best and biggest earner within that business. So the the moral of this story was not like, and then she became a teacher. Like <laughs> it was literally that she rose the ranks in sex work and kind of became the best one there was. I love that. Yeah. That is honestly, that is, that's the, that's the good moral of the story. Yeah. Yeah. So she had bought this play written by a man named J.J. Byrne, and she kind of used that as the template for sex. But she, the, the twist was, she, in his play, the sex worker was not the hero, and she definitely turned that on its head. This writer actually sued May for subverting his original idea because he didn't like the new twist that she put on it. He thought it was like immoral. Um, immoral. And the case was thrown out of court. Good. Because she did buy it and fuck him. So the press and reviews uh, were pretty terrible for this play. (laughs) Variety refused to even run stories on it because they thought it was absolute filth. Um, And they didn't like that it included a scandalous scene in which May belly danced and exposed her navel. I'm going to tell you something, Desi. People have never liked women being disgusting. I know. People, I, look, I'm, when, I'm re, I, when I was doing this, I was like, oh my God, this is me and Rachel. They, <laughs> like, it's still this way. There are people who get so angry about it. They can't handle it. Um, there was one funny review from a writer, and he said, um, May was the babe, babe Ruth of stage prosties. <laughs> I'm sorry. Holy shit. Yeah, so it's like he there was people there were people who appreciated her. Um posters for the show included lines like sex with Mae West. <laughs> so they were definitely like using this like prudishness to kind of uh add to the publicity. Um one uh New Yorker review described sex as street sweepings. A New York Times review said it was crude, inept, and cheaply produced and poorly acted. One review noted that the show's one toward love scene lived up to its title and an ad warning patrons who cannot stand excitement to see your doctor before visiting Mae West. These are these are literally our iTunes reviews. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But all of this just made people want to see it more because, duh, like, yeah, you got to see it. Um, the play outlasted like every play that it started with that year, and it um, earned about ten thousand dollars a week, which is like one hundred and fifty thousand dollars now. So that's like a lot of money. Um, yeah. So 
with the success of sex, May writes her next play, which is called Drag. Now, Rachel, (laughs) if you thought sex was scandalous for the time, wait till you hear about drag. The hero of drag is a man named Raleigh Kingsberger, uh, Kingsbury. He's a closeted man who is stuck in a loveless marriage. His dad is a homophobic judge, and his father-in-law is a conversion therapy pioneer. What year is this? 1926. <laughs> it comes out in 20, like early 27. So he basically, this story is about how Raleigh uses his wife as a beard to hide his secret relationships with men and to, to stop his family's horror from Raleigh ever being one of them. Uh, the play ends with a drag ball. Wow. Uh, and at this ball, you're never going to see this play because it won't be produced. Raleigh is killed and his dad, the judge, has to cover it up and make it look like a suicide for, a f- for fear that Raleigh's sexuality will be discovered discovered, um, and the family will be tainted by his homosexuality. Now, the ball at the end is described as an orgy of perversion. <laughs> <laughs> and another thing that May does that infuriates people is that she casts actual gay men for the, the drag ball. Homosexuals at the time were banned by the actors union to work on stage, which is fucking wild. To me. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Like, the, so she goes to the village and holds an open call to cast gay men for this drag ball scene at the end. And that's basically illegal. So she's like fucking with the legality of the production I mean, obviously, it's like this whole fucked up thing at the time. Now, this op- this goes to like out of town to kind of do previews, and it opens in January of 1927 to packed houses. Wow. But it is eventually shut down after two weeks because shit starts hitting the fan for Mae West and her place in New York are causing too much of a fucking stir. Now, there is something called the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice at the time, and they want to ban any attempt by Mae West to stage this play drag. West explains at the time, the city fathers begged me not to bring the show to New York because they were not equipped to handle the commotion it would cause. Now, one thing that I thought was kind of interesting, because obviously you're seeing this, she seems very feminist and pro-gay, but she had like a weird duality about her opinions on these kind of things that I could only chalk up to the times. Um, if you called her a feminist, she would definitely say that she was not a burn your bra feminist. So she would kind of try to soften the blow. And then in her 1959 autobiography, goodness had nothing to do with it. She kind of has like a weird opinion. Like she goes off on homosexuality as being like a mental disorder. Oh my God. Like she's kind of like taking the position, like, sure, they're allowed to be it. Like it's a deviant thing though. Like, do you know what I mean? It's like, she's not against them, but at the same time she thinks it's, um, a deviant thing. Like it's like a weird thing that I had never heard before. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, that was in 1959. Maybe she changes her mind later on in life, but that was all I saw on it. So yeah, it was kind of weird to read because she's such a gay icon. Totally. So I have no idea. Um, anyway, now at the time, New York had a very loose liberal mayor named Jimmy Walker, which made me laugh because that's the guy from Good Times. <laughs> but he, not the same guy. Um, he goes on a holiday to Cuba in February of 1927, and his acting mayor takes open over. Uh, this guy's name is Joseph V. McKee, and he's known as Holy Joe. So you can imagine uh, the trouble that's about to happen. Once Jimmy Walker is out of town, town, Holy Joe takes this opportunity to raid three risque Broadway shows, including West, who was the prime target with her show Sex. Um, there was another show uh, 
<laughs> that he went after that was called the Virgin Man. Sorry. I couldn't, I couldn't find out what it was about, but it made me laugh. I was like, the Virgin Man. Wow. Like, what was obscene about that? So the tabloids go wild with this because all 20 actors from sex are hauled off to a police station in Hell's Kitchen and Mae West spends the night in Jefferson Market Women's Prison. Like she's arrested for obscenity, basically. Now she bails out her whole company and the court offers to drop charges if she'll close the show. But she she knows showbiz and she knows that this is great publicity for her show. So the grand jury claimed that her obscene, indecent, immoral, and impure drama would abet the corruption and morals of youth. I mean, you can just see the ads are writing themselves. And she did consider this better than any rave review. It's kind of like when we love our our bad reviews. Like, these girls are absolute fucking trash. (laughs) We, like, put it up on it as a banner. It's amazing. So she's convicted and sentenced to 10 days. And she probably would have been able to get out of jail. But she really wanted to use it for publicity. Like, she probably could have gotten out of it or whatever. So at some point during the trial, the judge says to her, Miss West, are you trying to show contempt for this court? And she responds innocently, oh, on the contrary, Your Honor, I was doing my best to conceal it. (laughs) Like She's got some good one-liners. I'll give her that. Now, she she takes a limousine full of white roses to her um, incarceration on something called Welfare Island, which is Roosevelt Island now. So she shows up in a limousine full of white roses to go to jail to turn herself in. Um, She at some point dines with the warden and his wife. Uh, She tells reporters that she wore her silk panties the whole time and none of the other burlap that the other girls had to wear. She gets a lot of mileage out of this jail time. Uh, She serves eight days and she gets two days off for good behavior. (laughs) Media attention around this was just like blowing up. Like this really made her even more famous. She was like the darling bad girl of New York City and people said she had climbed the ladder of success wrong by wrong. Uh, Oh, like rung by rung. Yes. When Liberty Magazine paid her $1,000 for an interview after she served time, she used it to start a Mae West Memorial Library for free female prisoners. Now she did become kind of like a little bit of an advocate for female prisoners at the time after she was in there. So she did do some kind of good for them. Like she kind of saw things that were going on there and she did take a little time and money for that. Now, Pretty much as soon as her jailhouse time is over, May is back at work creating a new play called The Pleasure Man. Now, this is essentially um, her attempt to redo drag. Um, she basically, what she does to make it less obscene is to turn the lead into a straight guy, although she kept the drag ball at the end. So people weren't 100% buying her uh, switch. This play started, or, or debuted at October 1st, 1928. Eight, and as soon as the curtain fell, the entire cast was arrested once again <gasps> for obscenity. Well, that's a dramatic finale. Yeah. <laughs> um, so they did end up playing the matinee performance the next day, uh, but there's drag queens performing on the stage. Police raided again during that matinee. Um, the cast was once again draw- dragged away, and the crowd is like literally booing. Um, the cast of The Pleasure Man was once again acclu- accused of unlawfully, wickedly, and scandalously for um, lurid gain to produce, present, and exhibit and display this exhibition show and entertainment to the sight of divers and many people, all to the great offense of public decency. Now, 
She defends her work to the end, but the charges are eventually dropped. She spent about $60,000, which is under a million dollars, just under a million dollars in today's money, defending wow. all of these like obscenity charges. In 1928, she produces and writes the play Diamond Lil. And that's basically kind of based on Lily, Lillian Russell. Um, it's like a you know, a bar, set in a bar. She's like an old time hoe or whatever. <laughs> and that's really like, when you think of Mae West, it's like Diamond Lil. That's yeah. like her perfected final form or whatever, <laughs> like right. Diamond Lil. So at this, about, about this time, Mae begins having an affair with a young dancer with mob ties named George Raft. He's the one that will help Mae make the leap into Hollywood. So Around this time, May is uh, near broke because of all that legal stuff. She actually did lose a ton of money. And her mom dies, uh, I think it's 1930. So she's really upset because she was very close to her mom. She's kind of like a little bit rock bottom and she's approaching 40. So not the best time to go to Hollywood, especially back then. She All of her plays had been banned to ever be performed on on the silver screen, like they, wow. they, none of those things. So she didn't even have those properties to kind of sell. Um, so her prospects were pretty slim when she made the move to Hollywood. Luella Parson said about her fat fair. And I don't know how near 40, that was like how she was described. She, so despite her big Hollywood, like big Broadway fame, when she moved to Hollywood, nobody really wanted, wanted her. She described it as Hollywood greeting her with a very cold hand. So, she makes her film in, in a movie called Night After Night, which comes out in 1932. And she got the role from her old boyfriend, George Raft. Um, he suggested her for the role. It was a small part, um, but she was allowed to rewrite her scenes. Um, so in her fin- final scene, a uh, hat check girl exclaims to her, goodness, what beautiful diamonds. And West replies, goodness had nothing to do with it, dearie. So it's like she writes these lines. She knows how to write for herself. Um, she was a huge hit in this movie and Raft has, has, um, said about it. She stole everything but the cameras. It made her a star and it definitely proved that she knew how to write for herself. Like she knew what she was like. Right. Um, and that's going to come into play a little later. So at this point she's under contract with Paramount and they want to do an adaptation of May's play Diamond Lil. But as I said, all of her plays were banned from being produced in Hollywood at this point. So to get around the ban, they kind of made some changes. They changed it from a house of prostitution to a dance hall. Um, The name was changed from Diamond Lil to Lady Lou and they changed the title to She Done Him Wrong. This film was one of Cary Grant's first movies, uh, and this made him a pretty big star. West claimed that she spotted him at the studio and insisted that he was cast as the male lead, but there obviously <laughs> he was already sort of in the works and people wanted him to be cast, but she definitely started taking credit for discovering Cary Grant. Um, she said to the to director at the time, if he can talk, I'll take him. And Cary Grant is pretty fucking hot <laughs> when yeah. he's young. I mean, he's like... What year is this? This is 1932. So movies, or 33. Movies are literally just being, they're transitioning at this point. Yes. It's like very early talkie days. Yeah. So this film is a huge box office hit. It earns an Academy Award for Best Picture, even wow. though people kind of saw it as sort of a raunchy comedy and not a serious film. It's, it's also when, uh, I guess they have it now, but it was a 10 
picture nominee yeah. thing back then. Uh, so yeah, the success basically saved Paramount from bankruptcy. It earned over $2 million, which is the equivalent of $140 million today. And this is the movie that has one of her famous lines, our most famous lines that is actually fucked. It's not correct. It's not, why don't you come up and see me sometime? That's the line everyone says. She actually says, why don't you come up sometime and see me? And that's right. her line from the movie. Uh, but yeah, I actually feel like the mistake is better. I like yeah, it. Yeah, I like the mistake better. I heard it a lot today and her voice is really hilarious. Like <laughs> I was listening to clips or watching clips. She's just so over the top that it's insane. <laughs> <laughs> like when you hear her and like I listened to her so much today when I was finishing this up, it gets more and more ridiculous because it's like no one is this. <laughs> like <laughs> She is camp. Yeah. This is like camp like a, a times a million. It's like the, it's beyond. She's like peak camp. It makes sense that she kind of grew up around like a drag scene because yeah. it is definitely a character of a sexual woman almost. Right. Like, and it's just over the top. She is definitely like a drag queen. And she never changes. No. She, this is her for the rest of her life. Like, and it gets even campier the older she gets. Which is, which is exactly the right trajectory you should be going Absolutely. in. Absolutely. Beauty should be good for you. And that's why we're excited to tell you about Beauty Counter. Beauty Counter is a clean makeup and skincare brand that started in 2013, disrupting the beauty industry by shedding a light on the need for stronger ingredient regulations in the personal care products that we use daily. Today, Beauty Counter is the leading clean beauty brand creating innovative and high-performing products that are safer and cleaner than even their like-minded competitors. So what do we mean by clean? Over 1,800 questionable ingredients are never used in Beauty Counter's formulations. They call this their never list. You can learn more at beautycounter.com, where you're also going to want to check out their incredible products. Best of all, if you're a new customer and you order through March 15th, you'll get free shipping on your order of $100 or more when you use the code HOLLYWOOD. Once again, to get free shipping on your order of $100 or more, go to beautycounter.com and use the code HOLLYWOOD. As most of us have found out the hard way, getting into debt is easy, getting out of it is hard, especially if your credit score isn't great. Thankfully now there's Upstart.com, the revolutionary lending platform that knows you're more than just your credit score and offers smarter interest rates to help you pay off high interest credit card debt. I know firsthand that there's nothing more frustrating than trying to pay something down and your payments are pretty much just paying off the interest. Upstart goes beyond the traditional credit score when assessing your credit worthiness. Upstart believes you're more than just your credit score. They believe in you. The best part? Once the loan is approved and accepted, most people get their funds the very next business day. Over 400,000 people have used Upstart to pay off credit cards or meet their financial goals. So free yourself from the burden of high-interest credit card debt by consolidating everything into one monthly payment with Upstart. See why Upstart is top ranked in their category with a 4.9 out of 5 rating on Trustpilot and hurry to upstart.com slash Hollywood to find out how low your Upstart rate is. Checking your rate only takes a few minutes. That's upstart.com slash Hollywood. Her next release is I'm No Angel, which came out in 1933, and that teams her up with Cary Grant again. And they really are a great combination. Like, he's a great straight man for her, and she really needs someone to play off of like that, I think. It is so funny, them together. Them as a duo is like... Yeah. 
It's, it's just so perfect. Um, so this is also a financial success, even bigger uh, than she done him wrong. Um, she is a huge star at this point. In fact, um, Frida Kahlo paints a painting of her and her husband, Diego Rivera, he paints his own tribute. He says, uh, West is the most wonderful machine for living I have ever known. Unfortunately, on the screen only. Um, F. Scott Fitzgerald uh, found her very unique. He said, the only Hollywood actress with both an ironic edge and a comic spark. Variety uh, described May this way. May West films have made her the biggest conversation provoker, free space grabber, and all-around box office bet in the country. She's as hot an issue as Hitler. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> that's like from 1933. Like, Whoa. That's an insane quote. That's like if that guy had sent that, posted that on Twitter. He'd be canceled 10 years later. <laughs> no, someone would have quote tweeted it and been like, this aged poorly. Right, totally. But like, yeah, I mean, obviously, whatever. But yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> what a so, take. What a take. So... Not so impressed is a Catholic group obsessed with morality, Rachel, and they start coming hard, um, coming hard down on like the Hayes whatever code about her films. Desi, we're never going to be successful until we have an extremely religious group boycott us. It's literally my dream to get into a fight Same. with the Catholic League because I, I have a friend who got in a fight with them. You do? Yeah, Jake. Do you know Jake? Well, you know, Jake. Yeah. Uh, he he made some stupid tweet about Catholics and the Catholic League came after him. Oh, uh, my God. It was a really dumb joke, too. I can't even remember what it was now, but it was just like some dumb joke. And they like took it to a 10 <laughs> as if he was serious. <laughs> and I was like, I actually texted. I was like, honestly, I've never been more jealous of anyone in my life. I'm so To jealous. have like a religious organization come after me would be a dream. I'm like, oh, come on. They did it. To, they did way worse to me and Jake during the Inqu- Inquisition. Yeah. To our it's people. insane. So down. Uh they basically considered the fact that the films. Uh, well, the interesting thing about this, like the Hayes Code or the Hayes Organization, who right. are like moralize, like putting these like restrictions on films. Basically, one of their like so the Catholic this Catholic group is trying to come after these May West films. They're saying, well, the fact that they're successful means they aren't object- objectionable because people are going to see them. So that proves you wrong. I would love to do a show on this Hayes Code and this whole thing because it is so full of shit. Yeah. It's like, as always, if it's making money, then we don't fucking care. We're going to make an excuse. But when it's not making money, then we're going to cut everyone down. And like, right. I mean, it's just bullshit. So by 1933, she's literally the largest box office draw in the United States. By 1933. And she's um, over 40. Yeah. She's the highest paid woman uh, in Hollywood. And she's the second highest paid person in the United States after William Randolph Hearst. Uh Hearst invites her to San Simeon, and she said, I could have married him, but I got no time for parties. I don't like those big crowds. Now, these two are going to pass, pass, cross paths again, so I'll get more to him later. Now, on July 1st, 1934, the censorship of um, the motion picture production code begins to seriously and meticulously be enforced. West screenplays at this point are starting to be heavily edited, and she would intentionally place like really risque lines and scripts hoping that they would like miss that's like something people do now uh actually yeah so putting in really things that really bad things that they'll kind of cut those and she'll hope that she gets her jokes in kind of thing right um but yeah it doesn't really work that well 
she has her next film lined up. It's a movie called Bell of the 90s that will come out in 1934. The original title was It Ain't No Sin, and that got changed because of censors' objections. So this is like the rest of her life in movies. It's her fighting the censors, basically. Um, in addition to neutering her writing, there were a lot of seriously like anti-Semitic undertones to this Catholic group that's coming after Hollywood. The group is called the Legion of Decency. Um, I don't really have any quotes, but I read a ton of their stuff. And there's like definitely like going after the Jewish moguls of, of Hollywood. So it's like, there's a lot of fucked up stuff. And this group, once again, this Catholic group, this religious kind of like whatever. Well, they see Hollywood and they see that there's a lot of Jewish people uh, in Hollywood making movies and they think they're a bunch of like heretic Jews. Yeah. Yeah. That are immoral. So I think initially the moguls are like trying to keep these people at bay. Uh, but yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty fucked up dog whistly kind of shit. Maybe we'll do a show on that. Yeah, I think so. So, I mean, the Hayes codes I, I think would incorporate a lot of these, uh, Absolutely. Christian groups. Now at this point, this Hayes, uh, whatever, this organization is taken over by a man named Joseph Breen. He's a Catholic and he's really on board with the agenda of this um, Legion of Decency. What a name. (laughs) What's his name again? His name is Joseph Breen, but I'm saying the Legion of Decency is so like over the top. It's so like calm down. It doesn't even sound real. It sounds like something from like, like a, a superhero movie. It sounds fake. Um, so this is really bad news for Mae West because moguls now start really worrying about boycotts. Uh, the pre-code era ended when this guy take, took over, and that's sort of like when things got serious as far as censorship in Hollywood went. May had a big part in making this change, like ha- them sort of cracking down once and for all on movies and, and scripts. Her All of her pre-code movies were now banned. Wow. All those big hits were wow. banned. Wow. Needless to say, audiences did not like a censored Mae West. She was one of the biggest stars in in the world, but at this point, Paramount had no idea what to do with her. They decided to try something else. Her next movie would be called Klondike Annie, and that was a that was a movie that would be about a capped woman who kills her master and goes to Alaska. On this train ride to Alaska, she uh, meets a Christian missionary, and they switch personas, but she becomes charitable and Christian at the end of the movie. Oh, wow. Uh, some critics thought this was her screen masterpiece, but audiences did not like it. Uh, one person in particular really didn't like it, and that was um, press baron and sometime film mogul William Randolph Hearst. Now, in the book Hollywood Babylon, uh, Kenneth Anger theorizes that May had offended him with some remarks she made about Marion Davis Davies, but there's not really um, any evidence of that. And yeah. I, they, people think that that's one of Kenneth Anger's kind of like bullshit lies in that mm-hmm. book. Some people think that it was um, more Hearst going after the censors in Hollywood, that he was just pissed off at his treatment mm-hmm. kind of thing. And that's probably more true. But he had his newspapers really go after Mae West regardless. Um, In a private memo to his editors, he said, that Mae West picture, Klondike Annie, is a filthy picture. We should have editorials roasting that picture, Mae West and Paramount. Do not accept any advertising of this picture. But wasn't it super chaste compared to her other stuff? I think it still had a little bit of that at the beginning, but it I, had like a. I think it was just him, and there was something I read 
where he also didn't like that play drag. So maybe he did have a bug up his ass just about Mae West. It still was a Mae West picture, but it had like a little bit of a moralistic uh, twist to it. But she was still saying raunchy things in it. Right, For sure. Um, But it was definitely taken down a notch, but maybe it's too much for this prude. (laughs) (laughs) So at some point, uh, he also asked aloud, like, I can't remember where I think it was told to her. So he says, isn't it time Congress did something about the Mae West menace? And when she hears this, she says, I believe in censorship. I made a fortune out of it. (laughs) So she like, whatever, she's not phased by this bullshit man um, at all. How bored is he? He is an absolute garbage person. He really is. I mean, I I hate that term. It got overused, but he fucking deserves garbage. Now, I mean, the weird thing is, if you look back at these films, there's like no nudity or profanity. It's all like sexual innuendo and stuff like that. So it's like so tame for these days. And a lot of people do feel like what you're saying, like people did not like her being a confident woman, confident with her sexuality, flirting with men younger than her and not fucking caring what billionaire guys thought about her. And they do not like... Yeah. When women specifically right. are are owning that. Yeah. So she, she a quote from her is, I was the first liberated woman, you know. No guy was going to get the best of me. That's what I wrote my scripts about. So not only does she live her life that way, all of her scripts are about a woman like her doing that shit, like uh, not caring. So she goes on to make one more film with Paramount, but eventually their association comes to an end. Um, putting the final nail in the coffin for May was when she was named along with a lot of other people on this list called Box Office Poison that was put out by the Independent Theater Owners Association. Um, other people on this list were Greta Garbo, John Crawford, Marlena Dietrich, um, Fred Astaire, Catherine Hepburn. I mean, this was a pretty big deal list. And I yeah. feel like that will be in that episode on this period, which we definitely should do because it's crazy. Um, this was like a tack an attack that was almost like a paid advertisement to the Hollywood reporter. Um, and studio exec- executives took it seriously. Basically it was like, here's all these people you're paying a lot of money for, but they're not bringing in ticket sales. So it was put out by the movie theater owners. And then the studio heads were like, we can't hire these people. They're box office poison. Um, a lot of those people obviously recovered, but May West was uh, definitely not uh, one of them. Now, she does sort of continue to get offered parts, including big ones. Uh, David O. Selznick offered her um, the role of the Madam Belle Watling in um, Gone with the Wind. Oh. Uh, but she turned that down. She she really was kind of like pissed, and she thought she was too big of a star for that small part. But obviously, um, it would have been good for her. And she also wanted to rewrite her lines. Can you imagine May West? <laughs> in Gone with the Wind. <laughs> like rewriting her lines. Hey, why don't you come up and see me sometime? <laughs> like, that would, like seriously. That would Rhett, honestly be so funny because Gone with the Wind takes itself so fucking seriously. Seriously? Like to have her just be like a completely different style than everybody else. Like right. just saying like, oh my God. Yeah. So... In 1939, she's hired by Universal Pictures to star in a film opposite W.C. Fields. So 
This is a film uh, called My Little Chickadee. <laughs> in it, she plays the role of Flower Bell Lee. And they obviously hate each other. Fields is a fucking alcoholic. We all know this. He, you know, there's huge fights over the screenplay. She wants to again put her own spin on her lines. Um, but whatever. The film gets made. It's a huge box office success and actually one of um, W.C. Fields' biggest successes. But she's just still fucking fighting censorship nonstop in Hollywood. She eventually goes back to live performances and tries her hand at radio. Now, if she thought she was going to get away from censorship and radio, she made a big fucking judgment error in that in that regard because it's really bad there as well. Well, this is pre-podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine the podcast she would have today. She appears um, on some sketches on ventriloquist Edgar Bergen's radio show. So he, you know, he, that's a famous ventriloquist ass, act. Edward, Edgar Bergen and that Charlie uh, dummy. You know those two, right? And I, that's Candace Bergen's father. I'm fucking terrified of ventriloquism. Yeah. So this is probably the biggest ventriloquist act ever. Um, she's really popular. She goes on. She's fucking dirty. She gets censored a bunch. Um she kind of wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. How do they censor her on the radio? Do they do like a instead of a beep, it's like a auga? Yeah, exactly. She goes on the show, she appears as herself, and she starts flirting with Charlie McCarthy, who is the dummy. <laughs> so at some point, does she say you give, she says you to, give me wood? She does. She says <laughs> she refers to the dummy as all wood and a yard long, and then she she comments to him, Charles. I remember our last date, and I have the splinters to prove. <laughs> <laughs> so she literally almost got banned from radio after like doing those kind of things Good on this her. ventriloquist show. Then she goes on another sketch show, and one of the actors in the sketch is Don Amici, who you might remember from Cocoon yes. and like other movies, many other movies. So she goes on this thing, and she does a sketch. The show is called Garden of Eden. It's kind of like <laughs> they're playing uh, Adam and Eve. This is the oh sketch. Oh, my God. Okay? Does, I mean, look, I say these people... <laughs> <laughs> made a big mistake even casting her in this sketch. So at some point during the sketch, she says to Amici, get me a big one. <laughs> get me a big one. I feel like doing a big apple. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, it's also silly because it's, it's really nothing, but you could just picture how filthy she makes everything. And I love that, obviously. Now, when she does this Adam and Eve sketch, people lose their fucking minds and are sending letters into the radio show, calling it immoral, obscene. I just feel like it's the same five old lady. It's like writing hundreds of eleven. Like after after mass, sorry, after mass, they're just writing these letters. There's conservative women's clubs and religious groups who are like going after the sponsors. Do for- people not know you could turn the dial? <laughs> no, they they accuse the company um, of prostituting their services for allowing impurity to invade the air. Now, the FCC later determines that the broadcast was vulgar and indecent and below the minimum standard of what should have been allowed. Um, I mean, it's just like hilarious to me, and I would love to hear these lame-ass sketches that everyone's freaking out about because you know it's like nothing. She's like, fuck this. Uh, She's over it. A lot of people say sometimes it's not the words, but it's the way she says it. (laughs) Which is why she's so powerful. Exactly. She turns anything dirty, which is our specialty. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, So she's like, fuck this. And she goes on to to sort of focus on her live performance 
career. And she like breaks records in Las Vegas. She's performing in, you know, New Orleans, Broadway, London, everywhere. So she's fine. Now, she does kind of like go back to some uh, Broadway stage performance. And I would love to see this, Rachel, because she does a spoof on the story of Catherine the Great. <laughs> That's like one of her big performances. And she plays Catherine the Great. I didn't have time to like really dig a deep dive in it. It's like what you were talking about the other day. I kind of found it last minute. And I was like, I need to see Mae West playing Catherine the Great because you know that that's the filthiest play ever. The, the horse has to be in there. Oh my God. If it's not, then I will lose all respect for Mae West. <laughs> We did an episode on Patreon about Catherine the Great dying by horse fucking. True story. Look it up. (laughs) Totally true. Totally factual. Catherine the Great died from fucking a horse. We did a story about how she died from fucking a horse on our Patreon. Uh, it's one of our like early, early Patreon episodes. Oh, my God. Patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. Uh, Thank you, Rachel. Now... Uh, as I said, she has this big Las Vegas show at the Sahara and she's, um, her, her show is basically her singing songs while surrounded by bodybuilders now. Oh yeah. I know about this show. Yeah. So it was a big deal and it kind of like turned, you know, Las Vegas on its head, like sort of like, oh, now it's a woman with all these sex pot guys around them. Right. Eat shit. Now, uh, in the show, she says, men come to see me, but I also give the women something to see, wall-to-wall men. Now, one of the guys in this review with her was Mickey Hargitay, who would go on to marry Jane Mansfield. That's right. Um, And obviously, uh, Mariska Hargitay is his daughter. (laughs) Dun-dun. I have the sound effect. Should I put it in? Maybe. Do you know that I use that sound effect in my drag show? Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do. I do. Um. She's also offered the role of Norma Desmond, but turns it down. Okay, this is an amazing clip, and I have seen it. Uh, I'm putting it here. In 1958, she goes on the Academy Awards and performs Baby It's Cold Outside with Rock Hudson. You have got to look up this clip. First of all, can I just say that is the gayest sentence I've ever heard in my life? (laughs) Rachel, I've watched this clip literally like a hundred times because... It is the most uncomfortable thing you will ever see. She's coming on really hard to Rock Hudson. And we all know he's gay, even though he's not out at the time. So it just makes it like even more uncomfortable because she's really old. She's trying to be sexy (laughs) with this gay guy who's like not interested at all. Like, and he's not a good enough actor to really (laughs) sell it. It's the most amazing. It's like a, it should be in the gay museum. (laughs) It is like up there. It is insane. And the song obviously always is controversial. So yeah, it's an amazing, it's probably my favorite performance of hers. That's incredible. It's really good. The audience gives it a standing ovation too and it's like you guys don't get anything (laughs) so after a really long absence from motion pictures she makes an appearance in Gore Vidal's Mira Breckenridge which stars Raquel Welch Farrah Fawcett and Rex Reed and has Tom Selleck also in the small part this is an insane movie I honestly I would love to do a movie I would love to do something on this somehow it's about a uh it's described in the press at the time as a campy sex change uh, comedy. Are you familiar with this movie? Wait a minute. What year is this? Uh, 1970. Okay. So this is a book by Gore Vidal that was made into a movie. Um, and it has a really fascinating story because it's a wild subject matter for it's, a movie. It's a true story? 
Uh, I think his book might be loosely based on a true story, but it's not a true story. It has like a lot. It's one of those like movie productions that has a ton of fucking interesting stories and it's just a disaster from start to finish. Right. Which I love. I love hearing those kind of things. Maybe we can sort of include those in the repertoire. Sorry. (laughs) My taco just came up. (laughs) Um, So yeah, it's a huge bomb and like, uh, it's just an insane movie. She doesn't get along with Raquel Welch. Um, They fucking hate each other. At some point she's like, I can read her mind like ABC because my mind is so tricky. She thinks she's dumb. Uh, It's just a disaster and it's like a wild story. Um, Her last film is a movie called Sextet. I've actually seen this movie (laughs) and it's insane. It is a very bad movie. She is almost she's like in her 80s still playing a sex pot and like the lead the male lead is timothy dalton who's oh like God. i don't know 20 <laughs> this movie what year is this 1978 i think <laughs> oh okay so this is like God. a few years before she dies like she's that's old. how old she is and she's like huh. <laughs> <laughs> it is it's like if this was a man and a woman we would all be vomiting nonstop. <laughs> like it's insane it is like grandpa from <laughs> <laughs> from I'm sorry, I can't I can't even speak from Texas Chainsaw Massacre right, right. with like L Fanning or something. <laughs> it's like it's an insane combination. But because it's Mae West, it's just iconic. I guess so. I mean, the clips from it are Hold so on. out of control. I need to see like a a still of this movie. Now, this is actually based on one of her old scripts from 1959. She's 84 years old in this movie, and her eyesight is so bad, and she refuses to wear glasses or contacts. I love that. That she cannot, like, navigate the set. Like, it is just, like, whatever. Um, But Time Magazine wrote an article on it, and they just were like, at 84, Mae West is still Mae West. Like, oh, I know this movie. It's kind of famously campy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just, like, her look in it. First of all, she looks like she's had a lot of work done, but I don't don't know if she has, but she definitely looks a lot. She looks interesting. She, I think she's had some work done. (laughs) 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 And nothing wrong with that, but that's not an 84 year old woman. But I will be honest. I hope I look like this when I'm 84. Like, no, Desi. Listen, this is what I want to look like. I, I want to fine. When I'm 84, I definitely want to look like I've had a little work done and I definitely want to be at the casino wearing this hairdo. Yeah. I mean, it's not it's if you're going to do be old, I'm, I would do it. I'm going to I'm going to be old. I want to be really old and dressing a little too slutty. I think that's the best look. I you going to do that or baby Jane? <laughs> Well, that's what you're going to do. You're going to still be... I'll do either or. Right. Uh, yeah, I'm going to wear baby doll dresses. I'm not going to have powder on my no. face. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, obviously, she did have like one small marriage early, early, early in her life, but she never married again after that, and that might have been like before she was famous. At some point, she married... Or, or is, you know, with a man named Paul Novak. He was one of the muscle men in her... Um, chorus line I, during back yeah. in the day and uh he obviously is 30 years younger than her <laughs> i know this i know about this oh you do we talked about this i think scotty bowers he talked oh, about this okay okay so he's just like enamored with may west and he can't believe he landed her some interesting things about her that i sort of read was she um 
Salvador Dali made uh, a sofa based on her lips. Have you oh ever yeah, seen I know those? that sofa. Yeah, and those are—it's kind of an iconic piece of furniture. Right. Uh, you probably would recognize it. Um, another thing she did that I, I really have to, to listen to, she released an, uh, a rock album in 1972 called Great Balls of Fire. Oh my God. She's 79 years old <laughs> when she releases this and she has on it a cover of Light My, Light My Fire by The Doors. Holy <laughs> shit. So it's like, I need to hear that song because like, it's amazing. Like if she was... Eight in her eighties. Oh, 80s. you know <laughs> Can you imagine? I can. I know exactly what it sounds like. I do and too. I've never heard I, it. I know exactly what it I sounds like. I know exactly like what it sounds like. But like I'm saying, if she was like in her eighties today, she would definitely be like one of those reality star housewives that came out with a hit single. Oh right, and works in the and like does club performances. Yeah, like don't be tardy for the party. <laughs> yeah, with like thigh high boots. You know, what and my, she does lame choreography. <laughs> right, and I would like. Be obsessed with it. Yeah. My favorite of all the housewives songs is the Money Can't Buy You Class. Oh, yeah. I love it. I love that Money song. Money Can't Buy You Class. <laughs> um, she's also a devoted follower of astrologer Sidney Omar. Like, that oh. was another thing. Oh, wait. That's a crossword clue, like a couple, like a oh, week really? ago. Yeah. <laughs> oh, cool. Now, um, she lived in the Ravenswood Apartments. Right oh, over here oh. from 1930 until she died in 1980. Whoa. Yeah. So she lived there pretty much her whole life. Um, she apparently, in August of 1980, she tripped while she was getting out of bed and fell and was taken to Good Samaritan Hospital in Los Angeles. Tess had revealed that she suffered a stroke and she had kind of uh, been suffering from kidney failure um, for a while as well. And she died November 22nd, 1980 at the age of 87. Now her companion, Paul Novak, opted for an open casket for the funeral because he thought she looked so young still. (laughs) But there's something kind of sadly romantic about that. Like he wanted everyone to see her and she probably wanted it too. She probably wanted that. I mean, I love that request. I love it. I still look very young. Please have an open (laughs) casket so everyone can admire me one last time. That's hot. That is hot. That is really fucking hot. Summing herself up in her autobiography, she said, I became a star in the third person, even to myself. It didn't frighten me. I got fun out of being a legend and an institution. And she definitely, uh, I think, accomplished that. Now, one interesting thing I had never really known or even really thought about, she only had two fucking hit movies in her first year, basically. And then after that, it was all scrambling, like, all of this reputation is like based on those two films. Wow. You know what I mean? Like, but she was all, I mean, she's always around and stuff like that, but it's kind of amazing that she didn't have this long Hollywood career. You think of her as this massive star, like with Joan Crawford or whoever, like, but she really didn't have a ton of films, uh, done. Now she is really famous for her wisecracks or her like one liners. So I wanted to kind of do some of them, Uh, that she's most famous for. One of them uh, is men are like linoleum floors. Lay them right and you can walk all over them for years. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So some of these are more famous. When I'm good, I'm very good. And when I'm bad, I'm better. Between two evils, I always pick the one I never tried before. (laughs) Um, I mean, that's just good advice. Absolutely. These are all kind of good advice. Uh, good sex is like a good bridge. If you don't have a good partner, you better have a good hand. 
Oh, it's from Card Bridge. Oh, oh. I was like, wait, what bridge? Um, I used to be Snow White, but I drifted. <laughs> Just like all these like little kind of whatever. In Hollywood Babylon, Kenneth Anger claims that one of the reasons the Hayes, um, or like the Catholic, that Catholic organization, what was it, the League of Decency, went after her is that in one of her um, films that she was filming at the time, I think, I can't remember what it was called, the last one, uh, or the one after the two... Sex debt? No, not sex Bell of 91 or something? Yeah. Uh, In that movie, she said, is that a gunner in your pocket or are you happy to see (gasps) me? Did she start that? Well, that's sort of a mystery. Now, he says that that was the line that really set them off. Like, that's too fucking perverted. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. But then it turns out that that line was not in that movie then she does say it in Sextet, oh. but the rumor had been around already for whatever, 50 years or something. So that was kind of like a meta nod to So her. I don't know if she said it somewhere else and got credit. She is widely credited with that line. For coming up with that. Yeah, but no one can kind of figure out where it first happened, and people don't really buy Kenneth Anger's story. But she, it's some people think, oh, she kind of hung around with mom people so maybe she said it as a joke and it kind of became famous like but it is a if that i would be so proud of myself if if i I came came up up with that that line so she does then say at some point in sextet so it's like unclear but it's she's like credited with uh kind of inventing that line i love it yeah so yeah that's it that's the may west (laughs) story I just can't wrap my head around her in a way. It's like any, too crazy. Like anytime someone's pissing off censors, but in a clever way, I'm on board. Yeah, and I feel like she really fought it. Yeah. Like a lot of guys, I think, just gave in. And right. she kind of really was like, no. Like, I don't know where you... It, it's amazing to me to have that confidence during that period as a woman. She seemed pretty principled about yeah. her stance on it, that she's like, no, this is how, this is my comedy. She knew what she was. Right. And I feel like Hollywood at that point is all about changing everybody into something else. And she kind of like, yeah. no, this is me. I do one thing and it's be Mae West. Like, right. I'm not an actress. I play Mae West. Like, right. So it's like, she recognized that she wasn't trying to do dramatic roles or whatever. Right. Uh, and she knew, I like that she knew how to write for herself and, uh, yeah, I mean, she's just fucking wild. I wish I could have met her. Me too. Because it would have been a hoot, I bet. Like She would probably be really fun to go get dinner and drinks with. What was the... Um, do you remember the story from Scotty Bowers? Or you just remember just, him being mentioned? I just remember like, her, just her reading about her fucking her like muscly like backup dancer. Right. Because you don't understand, these guys are like the original Thunder from Down Under. Yeah. Like that is their look. They're no. like tan, muscly, big boys. She was like a perv. Yeah. Totally. Like she perv. was getting fucked a lot. Right. Like I read this story once. We're on one of the sets. She did get some guards to, um, like bodyguards, because someone had threatened her to attack her when all the censorship shit was happening. And uh, the police actually gave her these armed guards to protect her, and she fucked one of them. <laughs> You know what? Good for them. Good for I mean, them. she's just like she is a sexaholic or whatever. Like she wanted to fuck. Like she likes she's not sex. just like this is not like an act. She right. was Mae West in real life as well. Like, and I love that yeah. for her. Uh, yeah. Well, we're so gonna, that's it. We're gonna post some great pictures of Mae West on our Instagram. Instagram is Hollywood Crime Scene. So yeah. you should follow us there. Follow us there because we'll have a lot of great pictures to post this week. 
Yeah. And we will be posting, um, an old Patreon episode for Thanksgiving yeah. for a little gift. Because we're not going to have a Friday mini. And it's a good funny one. So definitely yeah. look forward to that. Absolutely. Um, that's our little Thanksgiving gift because we're so grateful. <laughs> <laughs> we are. We are. Um, yeah. So thank you. Thank you, guys. Bye. Bye.